Welcome to Creators by Moonlight. Real conversations with content creators. J.C. Coakley is a comedian from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In addition to stand-up, she's appeared on shows such as Chelsea Lately, was a finalist on Last Comic Standing, and currently headlines for Carnival Cruises. In this interview, she talks about how Michael Keaton inspired her as a child, life on the ocean, and how you can go home again. I was born in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, which to an Italian family back in 1983 was still booming, but was, you know, still in its sketchy days. <laughs> um, and I'm, you know, I'm a fourth generation, I think, McKees Rocks person. I think my family all went to Stroh Rocks High School, which, you know, now is a bit more gritty, but back then I think it was more family-oriented. That being said, I was raised by my mom and my dad separately, as my dad was in Florida, which really opened my eyes to Disneyland, or Disney World, actually, uh, as a kid in Pittsburgh. So I kind of went there as a kid in the summer and was like, oh, I want to work in entertainment, um, just because of, like, giant turkey legs in Florida. I went to uh, St. Malachy's Elementary School, same elementary school as Michael Keaton, the original Batman. So that was super exciting as a young kid, not really processing it. And then growing up and seeing him having a St. Malachy's shirt on in the movie Multiplicity, I was like, oh my gosh, it's possible for us to make it. <laughs> I had a smart mouth. I was very quick um, with words and I loved reading and characters and voices. So she put me in, I believe, the Pittsburgh Playhouse. Growing up as a kid, and I think my the first play I was ever in, I played an alien and I had like foil on my head and, and my mom like watched it, was like, what am I paying for? <laughs> and, but I, I remember glowing after that moment. And so then she consistently kept putting me into acting classes, but I felt like acting wasn't it. And I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, but until one day at Point Park Conservatory, as I was in high school, in Montour High School growing up, I went to Point Park for classes, not for college, and was pretty much introduced to the world of the arts as a craft, but not really thinking it was financially feasible or really even thinking about finances even in that moment. I was just thinking art, performing, but I was in the acting class and I had this epiphany because I, the teacher at the time had the students put on animal masks, like tiger and a lion and an iguana and act out the animal. And I remember thinking, this is so weird. I really just want to write jokes about it. So in true artist form, I kind of raised my hand and asked if I could go in the corner and write because I wasn't feeling this exercise. And that was when I first wrote my first stand-up jokes. I don't remember what they were. <laughs> I'm sure they were classic. That was probably around the age of 14, 15 years old, I was in that class. I opened to the idea of writing about something I was seeing in joke format. And joke format, be it the premise, the setup, the punchline. And that was when I started to see, oh, I had this sort of satirical point of view of what I was seeing. And 
the way I could express what I was seeing was writing it down and then saying what I had written down and, and getting a laugh after. But long-winded, you know, 14, 15, 16, you're setting up the premise for five sentences and then you're setting up the setup for 20 sentences and then you finally get to the punchline and that procedure went on for 12 years until you slowly go, oh, I can trim the fat and really slice these jokes apart and really back to back to back to back to back them. I had already been consuming stand-up in different styles and ways. First was record player that my mom and my dad would have playing of different artists, Lenny Bruce, even Lily Tomlin Records. You had Richard Pryor playing. You had Roseanne Barr playing. You had George Carlin playing. And then I would get goofy and find maybe some, some Brit characters, some Monty Python on record, some Monty Python on tape. Then you'd see like SCTV in Canada, which was sketches with Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara and John Candy, Martin Short. And you, it was like kooky characters. And then that brought me to Mad TV, which was on Fox. And I would watch really kooky characters late night. Those were my Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. I did not necessarily attend baseball games, basketball games. I attended football games because I was a dancer and movement was already such a big part of my family being Italian. So dancers not, was not rare. Jazz musicians is not rare. Guitarists, percussionists, just emoting in general with movement. And so I was, you know, you're ingratiated sort of into the system. It's not like Montour was pitching this like super formative avant-garde dance movement classes. It was like Spartanette. <laughs> and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing, absolutely nothing except for the uniforms. Um, but it was costuming. I was, I was able to see costuming. I was able to see presentation. And it was through the eyes of, you know, societal norms, which is football for the, the bigger culture. But I think on that field and at those rehearsals, I learned to make groups of people laugh without being on stage yet. So that was sort of my first dose of, look at me, I'm in a dress, I'm on the football field. Yes, we're doing movements. But while we're rehearsing and such, I was really sharpening my craft, like sharpening my observational skills, sharpening my listening skills, sharpening my, by accident, my tagging skills. Um, if someone said something, I could tag it with something that made someone else laugh. And I sort of watched the visual ping pong effect without knowing it was a science even really, and not having any family in the comedy business at all. And I think I'm the only person in comedy to not have a nepotistic <laughs> style of success. No, I'm just kidding. That's probably not true. As a young kid who grew up kind of in a sketchier style, I wasn't gifted with the arts, I had to seek it out. Pittsburgh is a seek out kind of town. You have to be driven somewhere. It's not like, or take the bus somewhere or ride the bike somewhere. You're not going to roll into a neighborhood and see a bunch of theater rows and jazz clubs. And it's extremely spread out. So you have to seek it out. If you weren't born in the neighborhood that had the arts district, you would have had to formally be introduced to it. And that's the difference between Los Angeles and New York. Uh, is that you can roll out onto the street and find the art. Pittsburgh, you had to sift through the leaves and the trash and the sports 
and the rivers and the stop signs on the freeways and your mom or dad having the car for the night. So you were only able to walk a certain radius unless you were one of the kids that got a car that allowed you to move from point A to point B. Now, we had kids that had cars, but they weren't taking me to arts programs. (laughs) You know, they were sitting in the back of the trunks at tailgating places or hangout spots like in varsity blues. That just depends on your style of family. And when it's suburban like that, you, you a lot of families fall into the same line. They go to their high school, their church, their football game, their bar, their restaurant. Their, and it's that rotation is healthy. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But you, like I said, you have to seek it out if you're going to go into specifically stand-up. So I was not cognizant that I was seeking out stand-up necessarily in my junior or senior year, but I did recognize that whatever I wanted to do, I wanted to do it in warm weather first. (laughs) With the broad goal of entering show business, JC left her hometown for Florida. Her long climb up the comedic ladder began with an unpaid internship for a local radio station and has led to many interesting opportunities since. My dad lived in Ocala, which was about an hour from Orlando, Florida. And I had this fascination with Disney growing up from a corporate perspective, from a media perspective, from um, a film perspective, a design perspective. So the idea of Orlando was already pretty interesting to me. My family was stationed in the Navy as a percussionist, and my uncle was the conductor of the Annapolis Navy Band. So my mom was super cool. Yeah, my mom was super cool about me going to Florida and seeking out like schools that are in Florida. And there was one called UCF, University of Central Florida, which was in Orlando proper. I had thought about journalism school in Syracuse, New York. I had thought about the arts at Penn State, but it really came down to I was paying for my own school anyway. And then whatever scholarships I could get or grants could be a bonus. But it's essentially my decision. So I was smart, but not in the sense of like, I think deep down I wanted UCLA because of the name. I wanted to go to University of California, Los Angeles. But the idea of California was so far for a 17-year-old going on 18. But I knew I wanted to go enough that I could dabble in something first without it being like New York, LA. So from Pittsburgh with that grit, with that desire to be by the ocean, like I had an inner hippie inside of me in Pittsburgh. I was very flower child since I was a kid. I loved like building a garden. I loved eating from the garden. I loved natural skincare. I did that stuff on my own as my own style of kid. That didn't make me cooler or anything. I just was very interested in kind of the self-care. And that felt like the right decision to go and try to see what it's like to be on my own in Florida. So Orlando was where I landed on and it ended up being just the coolest experience because it was not only is it funny to be like, I chose to go to college in Florida when I could have gone anywhere. I had good grades. I had, I could have done anything, but my family's very McKee's Rocks, my proper family. They're not like, you're going to go to Brown like that. My mom chain smoked and drank white Zinfandel. She was like, she worked at Permani Brothers. My dad was a blues musician that was in Ocala who like was known for like 
If you needed drugs, he could probably get them for you. It's like that dynamic wasn't thinking Brown, Harvard, be a part of society. And I wasn't necessarily thinking about it. But comedy was something I was thinking about and entertainment, the world of entertainment. I engaged in my consumption. I wasn't necessarily being thrusted into the business of it. I just was engaging in it and in that process was like, oh, I'll land myself as a intern at a classic rock radio station because I loved classic rock. I loved radio. I thought it was super cool. Howard Stern was really awesome to me in my eyes. Robin was very cool. As the host is very cool. And so they had this medium where, you you know, they would do sketches. It was weird. They would do voices. So to be 96.5 Orlando's classic rock intern was very cool. And I had a Pittsburgh accent and they would make fun of me for it. And I would be like, all right, now get ready to hear Scorpion. <laughs> it would like go on. And I was like, oh, this is what it's like. And I had this dream and, you know, belief that they would hire me after. Because you think you're that cool, you're that rock and roll, why wouldn't they hire you after? And it's, you know, they would have hired you, but you would have been in promotions. So which is like setting up tables for events and vending spots. And I was like, no, I want to be the star. I don't want to be in promotions. I don't want to throw out t-shirts. Like I'm the star. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't a classic rock radio station put a (laughs) 19-year-old girl from Pittsburgh on their payroll? Doesn't make any sense. So clearly I was, you know, in the clouds in that way. But I think there's something good about being in the clouds because there are so many people that can thwart your decision making in art that if you just use your own intellect to guide yourself safely there, you can you can really get far as an artist in creating. And then hopefully, which luckily I did someone will step in later and be like, all right, now here's bank accounts, here's accounting, here's your IRS, here's your LLC, here's your, here's how we do these things. Because I wasn't taught that element. I had to learn that the hard way. <laughs> You're not given that information. You have to seek it out. And if you get a mentor that can set you up business-wise, all the better. Who would mentor a comedian in my family? You know what I mean? Because there's just so few women. I'm just like, oh, this will be a, this is going to be a, not like it's going to be easy. It's just like, oh, I'm going to get on Saturday Night Live. That's what's going to happen. But in order to get Saturday Night Live, you have to do the character work and be, and film it and tape it. And I was watching in real time in 2001 to 2005, the pop culture scene happen and TRL booming and all of these artists coming on. So I was really engaged with live television and live events. Uh, So on my senior year, I had already developed like a couple of tapes, sent them into real world road rules like you do to just try to get into that system somehow with just personality based alone and then drive and knowing that I was a charmer and I could really develop it. And by a total fluke, by a total fluke, (laughs) and the fluke being that the TV show The Bachelor had its first season or second season or third season. I can't remember. It's probably the first or second season. They were like, this is such a good show. Let's do a spinoff at a college. And all the colleges in the United States basically said no, except for the University of Central Florida. So by pure luck and determination of auditions, I was one of, I think, 11 or 13 cast members cast in the television college version of The Bachelor, the one and only season (laughs) on the WB at the time, which is now the CW. And 
the name of the show is Big Man on Campus. And uh, my tag underneath said Jessica, comma, funny girl. So I was the funny girl in the show, like at 19 or 20 years old. And I was like, this is it. I did it. I did it. <laughs> and like people from Montour began to found, if they found out about it, some watched the show, some didn't. It was, you know, it was abysmal. I could not have watched the show, but this is pre-YouTube. You have to remember, like it's not, it might be able to be sourced on a, a DVD. I don't know. There is definitely a picture that comes up. If you put in Jessica, big man on campus, it's like one portrait that they make you take, but that's like all the information there is. But through that position, as I got booted off the show, episode three, because I wouldn't kiss the mark in the hot tub because I was like, he's a loser. And they're like, we're going to need you off the show. You seem to be <laughs> not giving us any, you're not crying, you're not drama, you're just making fun of all the grips and the lighting. <laughs> and what's the point here? But through that, I was able to make friends with the art director. And that art director invited me out to Los Angeles. And through that invitation out to Los Angeles, I acquired a internship at the same Warner Brothers that produced Big Man on Campus. So they put me into the marketing department, which was my first step into the corporate world of television and broadcasting. But I came in through backdoor opportunity. And so that was my first time learning television, the marketing and promotions and the branding of television shows that were not my own, that were what the WB had, which was Charmed, Superman, or whatever that Smallville, One Tree Hill. I don't know if One Tree Hill landed. Yeah, I think it did. So, and that was super helpful because that ended up being a huge opportunity for me to learn within the system and get, you know, on the red carpet as quickly as possible, be interviewing actors as quickly as possible. And of course, I was like overwhelmed by it. Um, Supernatural was on the show or uh, was on our network. So it was like two hot, like husky boys I have to interview, which is my dream and always has been. So I'm like in love with Jared. I think his name is Jared Padalecki. And I still talk about him to this day because I'm like 21 and I'm like looking at a beautiful man on who like, because their actors are just so beautiful. They're so unnecessarily perfectly symmetrical that it's just funny. So, of course, I, with like an Italian-American nose, I'm the interviewer because I'm like interesting face looking, but they're beautiful. And like, of course, I was like, they're all in love with me. <laughs> Meanwhile, no, none of them were in love with me. That job alone wasn't going to pay the bills because it was free, but I had to be there five, six hours, almost seven hours a day. So Laugh Factory had an opening for a cocktail server. And the one thing I know about stand-up clubs is cocktail servers are the pros at knowing comedy. If you're in a cocktail serving position, you're listening to comedy three shows a night or in a, two hours per show while doing transactions for cocktails. So you are bobbing and weaving with some of the best, but you're also, you know, it's harmless because you are, you're just slinging drinks. So you're not, you could kind of see the system without being a part of the system yet. Because I wasn't sure yet. Was it stand-up or was it my appreciation for stand-up? But, you know, like a Steel City girl did, the moment I stepped in, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is for me. The Laugh Factory has a very interesting rule. And I remember them saying this. To my credit, anytime I hear like, no, I'm like, that feels like a yes. 
they said, you know, cocktail servers are cocktail servers and we never put our cocktail servers on stage. And I was like, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem, no problem. Um, and just like came in hot, really, really all about it. Would work Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, straight. You need help booking upstairs? No problem, I'll go upstairs. You need help with the bartenders that are from the Philippines? No problem, I'll help them. And then by, you know, month three, they were like, fine, just take the midnight show, you can host it. But they, you know, I wasn't good. I had personality. I was brave as hell. And I was ballsy. And there was something about those three things that were that were keeping me afloat, regardless of what anyone was saying in front of me. I was I was going, yeah, this is this is where I want to be. But I'm still slinging drinks and I'm doing open mics on the side, but I'm watching the best of the best go on stage for five years while I'm doing mics and writing and taking casting jobs at MTV and using my directorial position of being able to engage with people to get good tapes for the producers so they can see the shows coming in. So I'm using my skill set to engage in one-on-one conversation to bring out their humor, their personality, their abilities, and sharpening it almost behind the scenes. Because there's one thing I'll say about stand-up is like, yes, back in the day, there weren't a ton of video. So you would go and do stand-up and no one would see your bad sets except for the people in the room. Now everyone's filming their sets, filming their bad sets, filming their good sets, filming their, and everything's film, 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 film. But have you worked on that craft? Have you really worked on it? Or did you just get lucky with this three second, three minute, four minute bit? Which is fine, because if you could utilize it, but the, it's the long game. It's the business aspect. Once I started to really build that scene for myself, I was getting asked to open up for other comics. Um, Dom Irera, Jeff Ross, Uh, Neil Brennan, Jordan Rubin, Maria Bamford. These are comedians that were popping in and out. Natasha Legiro, Whitney Cummings, Tiffany Haddish, comics that were coming in and out of our clubs while I would go to New York and see like Janine Garofalo on the same bill as me. And the comics that I adored like David Cross or Dave Attell were walking in and out of rooms. And that's when I realized these were not just colleagues anymore. These were actually my friends. And I was going, whoa, I'm a comic? Because <laughs> you don't really, no one's like crowning you. They say your first payment, like your first real payment as a standup is the first time you get to recognize. But if you're smart, that's not your recognizing. Like if you're making... 2000 or more a month as a comic, you're still in low scale. So if you can make 3000, then that now we're talking a little bit. And then 3000 in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, before like everything went psychotic. <laughs> so you could survive off of $3,000 in LA as a comic. And that's low. That's like minimum wage job in Pittsburgh. You know, and that's not true because I think the medium. Medium middle wage in Pittsburgh, I think, is 40,000 or 45,000. And I didn't care about the number and I wasn't living wild. It just was your rent, your food, happy hour cocktails, repeat. Your rent, your food, happy hour cocktails, repeat. Rent, food, happy hour cocktails, repeat. So it was like you were just trying to build a cycle and your family would check in. What are you doing? But my family was not, what's in your bank account? 
what's on the agenda for this. I was a lone wolf in comedy. My aunt and my uncle later have announced that they wish they would have been a part of it more, but now they see the success that happened with my own like skill set. I wasn't going home for Christmas and everyone was organizing things for me. It was very much like I'd go home to my mom and my mom what didn't like really ingratiate herself into the family unit all the time. Sometimes we'd go to a holiday party, sometimes we wouldn't. It was like one year we would, one year we wouldn't, four years we wouldn't, one year we would. But no family member was like, all right, you're going to do this, 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 and this, and I'll check in with you. Like, it was like, just stay alive. Signature style versus now and then. Signature style, then. Streamlined thought process. Visual humor, observational humor. Female perspective, because I knew that perspective pretty well. Oddities. And odd sounds, I would say, like oddities that I would find interesting or different, or why would that be built this way? Asking why. Asking why, and then coming up with a conclusion, and then perhaps a fantasy to build onto it. And, you know, most of all, silliness. The silliness of it all. I wasn't a heavy drinker. I wasn't a heavy drug user. I'm not any of those things now either. And I didn't play around with too much of cigarettes until I started to be like, well, that's not fair because Ernest Hemingway smoked cigarettes and drank wine and he was an artist. And I'm like, yeah, but you're also not Ernest Hemingway, Jessica Coakley from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But I didn't know any better. I just thought that was the art. So I would say that my style was fluid for a long period of time. I would be told they thought I was doing too many voices in my standup. My pitch and my voice would change. Or did you have, did you have an accent that set that time? And I I did. I would do it with an accent. I was just, I was dabbling. But then they were like, no, the time clock is ticking. We got to get you on Letterman. You got to, you need five minutes. You need five strong minutes. What do you want that five minutes to say to the world? And you're like, what? Uh, I don't know. I just, I just came out of a British accent just a second ago. So let me just play around with this. So I went and did the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the Sydney International Comedy Festival. I went and did other comedy festivals throughout the United States. That showed me what brands were out there, what comics were doing what, and introduced me to performing in front of college students. So I could develop a voice, what I was trying to say, and use my my voice as the medium. But essentially, 2009, I felt like my voice was really shaping. By 2010, I had eyes watching me. And that was the female perspective, the dating perspective, travel, and but being from a grittier place, so not traveling for like the cheaper way. And th- that found its like connect. It didn't explode, but 2006 is when YouTube happened. And if you were on it in 2006 and you established yourself, you already were talking to the void of your fan base. So I'd say 2009, 10, 11, I started to have vlogs and people on the internet care what I had to say and laugh about it, but they would always be like, you're just like Grace Helbig or, but I'd be like, oh, who's Grace Helbig? And look at it. And she'd have 1.5 million (laughs) followers. And I was, I'd be like, I'm, I'm nothing like Grace Helbig. She's consistently posting every single day at the same time. I'm juggling two jobs in the day, a stand up at night, my family back home. And this Uh, This gig up in San Diego for $15 and this gig down in San Francisco for $150 and that gig in 
uh, Las Vegas for $350. I'm just collecting change and you're kind of just keeping it afloat when, you know, strategically you have your managers to start saying, all right, this is how we'll align this portion of it. Now I want you to pivot here, start writing here because you have to hand scripts in. These scripts will be more work. So you're just kind of going like this into the motions. And then you see the potential of it right as you see the potential of it, everyone you know starts getting married and having babies and more babies. <laughs> and you're like, wait, so now we're, you guys, we can't go to, you're not going to go to Portugal together. We're not going to, we're not going to do spring break. Oh, you're Christmas. Oh, okay. So you're, oh, okay. And you just start to see it. And you're like, oh, this is a comics life. This is actually a comics life. You are addicted to the work. and it's too fun to not be addicted. So what's going to have to be is you're going to have to have a different style of life than what the traditional Pittsburgh life that I know I've seen is. Cul-de-sac, football games, family bar, that stuff. There's nothing wrong with those things. Nothing. It is just not going to be what I have as an, a life right now specifically right now as a female comedian, we usually burst bubble-wise at the age of 40. It's like known. Um, if you're a young female comic and you explode into the system, into the world at like 21, 22, 23, you're super lucky. But usually it's like late 30s, early 40s, sometimes late 50s. Things have changed. You could be a TikTok comic. You could be an Instagram model comic. You can be a YouTube comic, you can be a bar stool sports comic, you could be anything. Radio personality, like my dear friend Sunny Abada, is her own blog sensation, creating work within the space, being from Pittsburgh, but operating out of Orlando, Florida. So it's it's all possible. It's just a matter of which path ends up clicking. And I think my voice really, I tapped into my voice and I started to just crush on stage. And once I got that flow, the butterflies of performing just completely disappeared because you get them for a little bit, a lot of it, almost every time. But now you use it as energy. You don't use it as doubt. After years of pursuing the grind in L.A., J.C. accepted a position as a headlining comic in residence for Carnival Cruise Lines. This position allows her both the professional growth and the quality of life she desires. Some people can be on a, a straight and narrow path. Some people have a linear experience. I think I went up and down a lot because I had TV shows that were a, seconds away from being made that got pulled off the air. I had pilots that we shot 13 episodes of that Michael Showalter directed, who's like from wet hot American summer. And so you think that's going to be like a banger of a hit. And at the same time, MTV puts like a same style TV show on at the same time as yours. They take your slot. All 13 episodes get like thrown through the television cycle, but never to be promoted. So you're like, ah, how did that happen? But that's just so much of it. And as you're like bobbing and weaving, you're like, oh, I can't eggs in one basket this. It needs to be a job, a profession. So you have to make sure you're making steady income for yourself, for the lifestyle you want to create and the lifestyle you want to retire to. And 
as, you know, anyone had said these last couple of years, and then COVID happened. So as I was getting pretty ramped up in comedy, I, I had booked a really killer job as a comedian for Carnival Cruise Line. So you travel the world and you do stand up for their cruises. So it was this awesome opportunity to <laughs> go on vacation all the time and do stand up, which is ideally how I wanted my life to be, which was see the world, perform, get paid for it, save money, repeat. And it is by far one of the best positions for a stand up comedian that you could really ever have if you want to really sharpen and fine-tune material and do it in a different style. And it's a huge opportunity as a female comedian. They have, I mean, it's so many male comedians or male-identifying versus how many female, strong female, female-identifying comedians on the ocean. And, you know, by the luck of the draw, the ocean and cruise ships became the talking point from 2020, 2021, and 2022. Without me predicting that in any way, shape, or form, no one would have predicted that. The best way that I like to do things is I, you know, I'm not a boy uh, that likes to be in a van with other smelly boys that gets into a smelly boy hotel and performs at a comedy club that's possibly clean. And I'm not saying all boys are smelly, but most male comedians are smelly. And I personally like a king size bed with a big bathtub at my hotel and uh, this, that, and the other. So when the cruise ships came to me, you know, they fed my inner diva. I grew up in the rocks, which is a very gritty part of town. And everyone has their version of the rocks. It's just what the rocks means to you. And that was not, you didn't, you weren't like in a bathtub with your feet soaking in the rocks. You were like struggling to survive. So the idea of being on a cruise ship and traveling to islands that are like, don't worry about a thing, everything's going to be all right, steal drums, perform stand-up for people on vacation, that is a narrative I can absolutely get behind because I think life is extremely political right now and heightened and tensions are high. And especially coming out of a pandemic, people are suffering from the lack of communication and humanity and the overwhelming efforts in the internet and an overconsumption of TV shows, news, etc., human face-to-face -face is becoming more obsolete in its way. But the one form that can make it always stay that way is, you know, opera, stand-up, live performance. You you don't, you're not missing something. Something's not edited in. Like a live Grammys is still cut. A live Oscars is still cut. A live stand-up show is there. Netflix is cut. Hulu is cut. These are cut. Live performance is in the moment right there. It's happening. You could film it and have it, but the people there are feeling it. And so that's what the cruise ship is. And I saw a huge opportunity because I even heard from other comics cruise ship comics. Oh, I would never be a cruise ship comic. That's for comics that don't work. And oh my God, is that the stupidest thing I've ever heard? It's like, oh my God, you're missing the opportunity of an actual lifetime. And now I think comedians are like, hey, JC, what's up with those cruise ships? Because they just see me in Aruba and Bermuda and Catalina and Alaska and Europe. And I'm working with material 
inside a bubble, but it's a floating Las Vegas comedy club. That's what it is. So it's not, oh, you're just doing vacation material. No, I'm I'm developing five half-hour shows, six half-hour shows, three rated R, two PG, so kids can come, so characters can be worked on and, and getting a sizable paycheck while it happens. Everything changed with COVID, but it is pretty much a free vacation with you performing in the interim. You will be in crew quarters, which is still absolutely lovely because you have uh, stewards that come in and clean your room every other day, do fresh sheets. Now, sometimes they don't show up for a week, but as a lady, they come whenever I want them to. The food is all complimentary. Buffets upstairs with all the guests. There's restaurants. Every ship is different. They have different classes of ships. And you will go to places that are really cool. You'll go to places that are not so cool. You'll go to places that are interesting. You'll go to places that have bad bugs from Honduras. There's like bugs, but I love the place and I love the food. But you're also with real people. Salt of the earth people. Six figure, seven figure millionaire down to Ratchet, as Doug Williams, comedian out of California, says Section 8 cruises. And he really embraces them. And we we have a blast, but there's a formula. It is maritime law. It's a very serious job. You have, you're part of a corporation, so it's not like I have free game to do everything. But I do have thoughtful, real-life comedy beats that I cover. And I don't, I push the line very, very, very much on the ship because to me, that cruise ship, just because you're on vacation doesn't mean you don't get to hear about the injustices going on in the world. Just because you're on vacation doesn't mean you don't get to understand, you know, a person of color or a person that is in the trans community or voting issues. But you're going to hear it through my point of view, which is uh, McKee's Rocks Girl. And I find a lot of people connect with that a ton. People that are like, thank you for saying these things. We, we're, we're losing our minds out here. And I call them water people because I think people that like vacation on water, you're a specific kind of person. A cruiser is a very specific kind of human being. People that do it rep- repeatedly because it's just all included and you get to kind of just experience it kind of free game, make it your own under the guise of what Carnival is. And it's just funny and fascinating and I'm happy to be back on land right now, but I'll go back out again in a couple of weeks. I find balance in it, though. I use it as a resource to read, to edit, to work on projects, and then use it as time to pace away from the stresses of what land life brings to a lot of people, which is when I come back to land, I'm always shocked. I'm like, oh, my God, are you guys even happy? Everyone in the ocean so happy. But you can get lost in it. Like I eventually, by day 21, I'm like, Am I even a comic or am I just a guest? But I'm a comic (laughs) and I have a job to do. Eventually, JC had a realization that surprised even herself. And she has now made it one of her missions to bring the arts back to her hometown. The doors began to really open after all the hard work really started to pay off. I saw these doors really open and the career become more and more succinct. I started to realize in California, I was like, all I want is trees and land and space and some rivers, some lakes, some creeks, 
some mountains and I want all the seasons. And I slowly was like, oh my God, I'm naming my hometown. I definitely didn't think I would ever do that. I just second assistant directed on two feature films in Pittsburgh. One is a thriller. Last summer, I spent about five weeks on that thriller. And then the most recent one is Unsinkable, which is about the trial that happened after the 1912 Titanic sank. So TV shows, films, stand up. And now we have the Steel City Arts Foundation, which is in Stanton Heights with comedian Steve Hofstetter. And that's where I'm at right now. What I've always wanted was to build this kind of facility that I could live in, work in, and be a part of. And this is our comedy live work space that is a 13,000 square foot church that we had our team gut and make into a podcast studio, a live stage studio, a state-of-the-art broadcast studio, editing bay, 200-person venue church, small independent space, recognized as a nonprofit, in the middle of the heart of Stanton Heights. So as zoning kind of completes, what we do is we mentor the comics coming in and make sure that the comedians that are here in Pittsburgh feel like they have a space, a home to land so they can be a part of stand-up culture in all of these tri-state areas. Ohio is, you know, our neighbor. West Virginia, Virginia, Maine, Washington, New York, Canada, Montreal, Overseas is London. I mean, it's it's a very, really interesting hub. And that's because I spent 15 years in California. Seeing it, building it, seeing how intense the California life was in the entertainment business, but also how packed it was, um, how densely populated it was, but also how beautiful it was. So it, it was important for me to live in California, see California, develop a lifestyle in Los Angeles so I could get my teeth sharpened in that kind of way. And then when I'm feeling like I want to be a part of the hustle and bustle, I'll drive in or fly into New York. When I'm feeling like I need to be a part of the hustle and bustle, I'll fly to California or I'll fly to London or I'll fly to Montreal. But when I want to be calm and around my family unit and get my art done, my health appointments, my lifestyle, property owning, because Pennsylvania is, is way more interesting now as an adult than I thought of as a kid. And being able to come back to Pittsburgh and and build that life foundationally here with other comedians, it's like, whoa, all of that work is weirdly worth it. And now I'm mentoring other comics in our city so they have a more streamlined path than my roundabout way of doing it. Because I traveled that path without these resources. And now I'm a part of these resources here in our own city. And I'm a phone call away from doing another feature film, or I'm a phone call away from doing another television show and making revenue off of that as a professional comedian. Pretty impressive from the Pittsburgh standpoint. Michael Keaton still hasn't called, but I know he will. So I am working on my personal book, my memoir about uh, what these last five years, that last catapult five years in comedy has been like, including the cruise ships during COVID. And I am doing a one more tour for Carnival before I break for the summer. And with that, I will do New York City for three weeks. Uh, Midsummer, I have a show coming up at Kingfly in Pittsburgh, beginning of July. Steel City Arts Foundation in Stanton Heights is moving along with our weekly show in Pittsburgh. That will be at Hop Farm. Brewing Company. 
starting at the end of June. So we will have Steve Hofsetter headline, I will host, and then we'll reverse the roles and we'll bring on talent that we think in Pittsburgh is going to be awesome. And then I plan on Portugal in uh, July. And this is, God willing, COVID variant, borders open, no World War III. That would allow me to kind of see what's going on in the Portuguese market, what comedies looks like over there, because it's not necessarily something I would be aiming for. But two years of doing Carnival's version of what travel is, it's, it would be nice to like go back to something I would personally curate. So that sets me up for all of summer. And then September, I will go to Los Angeles like I usually do because that's pilot season to pitch. Um, TV shows and such. But I like to be back in Pennsylvania for October, November, and December because it's just, it's so nice that weather and the holidays and such. And then literally that is what I'm looking at for timeline because my album is in the edit bay. So my next album, I'm playing around with two titles. One is International Waters and then the other is Ship-Based, which I think is just funnier. So I think I am going to land, I had recorded it on the cruise ship five different shows that we've put together and picked what show was the best for me. And that will be my second debut album on the cruise ship. I filmed it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to having those things out and by December decide, wait on COVID to decide, but let let me see where the entertainment industry is as far as what's filming and what's being produced. As we all know, in the entertainment business, the day before your project begins, something shifts and it shifts again and it changes and that gets moved to this day and this gets moved to that project. I've become accustomed to it because it's my life and my family is they they're all gig life workers, so it's very normal for us to be at this place, but COVID made it like even more like dicey, we'll use the word, like but I know my schedule. I just have to get it sent from Carnival and then from LA, then from New York and then from Portugal. And then, and then it gets in the agenda. <laughs> it's sprinkled out. I'm such a sucker for an open mic. That's the traditional in me. That is the organic space to develop. But I don't want that to hinder anybody because of health factor. So my advice is create consistently. Create consistently without worrying about viewership without worrying about if it's funny, without worrying about if it's bad or good, leave it all up, keep moving, keep plugging, because that is how your voice gets demonstrated, molded, and you can get your feedback organically. If you set out for certain things, set them realistically as you would as a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, and a 50-year-old. Don't look at it as this is what I believe and I believe it now. There's a lot of people in their 20s. I'm not getting married. Look at your career through the eyes of a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, and a 50-year-old and shape that now. Because if you wait to shape it at 50, you're, you could have a speed track if you look at it from a bunch of different standpoints. But be authentic. You know, I, I, I'm a huge believer in authenticity within the creator self consistency, consistency, consistency. If it's write a page of jokes every night, write it every night. It's every week, every week, but consistency. Put post-its up. Remind yourself. Be accountable for that work. 
because procrastination is only going to win if you think about the word procrastination. If you think about the word follow through, you don't have time to say the other word. That is the biggest point is consistency. Thanks for listening to Creators by Moonlight. Email the show at creatorsbymoonlight at gmail.com and follow the show on social at Creators by Moonlight. <laughs>